This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Daryl G. Hart, who has written a new book with Oxford University Press called Benjamin Franklin, Cultural Protestant. Dr. Hart is distinguished professor of history at Hillsdale College and author of numerous books on Protestantism in the U.S. I'm glad he's here to speak with us today about this new book, Dr. Hart, uh, Daryl, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the show. Sure. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this isn't your first time on the New Books Network, um, but for some of our listeners who may be less familiar with your work, maybe you can tell us just a little bit more about yourself. How could that be? People unfamiliar. <laughs> um, so I have been at Hillsdale College for 11 years, uh, probably the best uh, period of my career for um host of reasons, but I um, went to Johns Hopkins for my PhD in American Religious History, where I did an intellectual biography of J. Gresham Machen, the um, New Testament scholar and Presbyterian conservative who was all over the fundamentalist controversy. Um, And since then, I have written about a lot about American religion and politics, American higher education, especially religious studies, a book that... um, I am somewhat proud of, I hope not in a sinful way, uh, um, The University Gets Religion, which was my second book on the history of um, the formation of religion as an academic discipline in American universities, which involves a lot of uh, history of Protestantism as a backdrop to that. Um, And then I've uh, also been working on... um, uh, history of Reformed Protestantism in various contexts. I guess the big title there is a 2013 book, I guess, what I did with Yale called Calvinism, a History. That's largely transatlantic. I work in some African and Asian themes, especially through missions. Um, but uh, that's a little bit of, I grew up in Philadelphia area, um, suburbs of Philadelphia, Temple undergrad. I still am a Philly boy in a lot of ways. And um, like the East Coast, that's probably my only regret about Hillsdale, Michigan, is that I'm as far removed from the East Coast as my wife and I are. That's great. Thank you for that. So uh, getting to this new book on Franklin, it's part of this OUP series on spiritual lives, sort of recasting some prominent figures in, in new ways. And, uh, and, and thinking about how these figures sort of navigated different uh, religious questions. Um, so why Franklin? 
how does he, uh, as your subtitle mentions, uh, as a cultural Protestant, how does he fit into this series? Well, uh, I think the series, I can't speak for the editor, Tim, Timothy Larson, who teaches at Wheaton, and he was actually after me to uh, write, To he wanted my book on H.L. Mencken, which I did in the biography series that Erdman's uh, does, but I was already committed to Erdman's, so I suggested Franklin to Tim, and he said that was great. Um, and I think what he's trying to do is to capture prominent people in all walks of life and explore the religious or spiritual dimension. And I'm not sure how much um, I really thought about the differences between spirituality or being spiritual versus being religious. And I know there's a lot of attention to that right now in trying to understand Americans, at least, and nuns and those different categories that pollsters use. Um, but I think the, the big uh, endeavor with the series is to uh, find figures of prominence in the past and um, and explore their religious backgrounds and even it, surprising aspects of the lives that, that might ha- may have a religious significance. Uh, my wife is reading now their... Um, they did a, a, a biography of Christi, Christine Rossetti, poet, um, hymn writer. Um, and I know one of the first volumes was Barry Hankins, who did a, a spiritual biography of Woodrow Wilson. Um, Tim Larson did um, himself did John Stuart Mill. So again, sort of big names, people not associated with religious or church or Christian history, and then um, trying to figure them out. In my own case, with Franklin, I, as I explain in the preface, I think, um, pretty sure that's where it is, I went to uh, Ben Franklin Junior High, uh, played in the marching band, played um, <laughs> the uh, middle guard on the um, football team. I mean, it doesn't matter what I did there, but that was, so Franklin was just a presence. We took field trips as suburban kids to the Franklin Institute, which is Philadelphia's science museum. Um, He has various uh, institutions in the society Hill or the historic parts of Philadelphia. So he's just a, he's just a prominent figure in American, I'm sorry, in Philadelphia uh, life. He, He established a number of institutions there that I was probably unaware of even as a temple student. But um, so he was always intriguing. And at Hillsdale, we have a course that all the faculty teach, one of the core courses in American heritage. And we we have uh, excerpts in the reader from his autobiography. Um, and he, he's, he's always struck me as a, a very intriguing figure. So I was glad for Philadelphia reasons, as well as uh, religious history reasons, and even colonial history, which I, I dabble in. I'll be teaching colonial America um, this fall at Hillsdale. Not necessarily trained in it, but um, but it, it's only at a 300 level. It doesn't, it's not, say, advanced uh, work on it. It's more coverage than um, uh, going deep. And uh, so I, I like that period. I like thinking about America before it was America. And um, I've, I've been struck by the affinities between uh, 
the United Kingdom uh, and North America, which includes Canada. And so Franklin was what gave me a chance to to think through some of those matters. It also made it really attractive that so much of his writing is available online. <laughs> so I didn't have to do necessarily a lot of work in archives, which I, I didn't do, but. Yeah, very good. Well, you know, you, you have this part of the beginning about uh, Franklin's early years, which seemed really important um, in terms of just understanding his experiences and, and exposure to uh, religious ideas that would come to have some influence on him. Uh, but there was more than than just sort of the old influence of Puritanism on Franklin as a youth, um, and I'm wondering if you can tell us some about that. Were there other were there other social cultural expectations, um, you know, about how to live, what to do that Franklin learned as a boy um, that that came to have some influence? Well, he was um, his parents were devout. I mean, we know mainly about his parents through Franklin himself. Um, uh, one of the interviews I did was for a website called fivebooks.com, and they, they ask for the best five, they ask authors for the best five books on a particular, on the subject of their, their writing. And so they asked me to do something on Franklin. And, and one of the books that I used for Franklin's Youth, just extraordinary book by Arthur Bernan Tortolo, um, T-O-U-R-T-E-L-L-O-T, but that's at fivebooks.com. People could find that if they want to go there. Um, and it, it covers Franklin only up until maybe he gets to Philadelphia, which is roughly 1726 or so. Um, and it, it's great coverage of what Boston was like when he was growing up. Um, but the parents were devout. They were members at uh, Third Church or, or, or Old South Church, uh, which is still going. The the building is there too. I'm not sure if it's the building that he would he was uh, going to church in. Um, they wanted him to be a minister as the tenth uh, child of the fa- of his father, um, and this was sort of like a tithe of his children to the church to send to prepare Ben to go off to the ministry. And he went to uh, Boston Latin for a brief bit, but um, over time the father was, and I think this is actually telling that the father was not so doctrinaire that he, he, he kept pushing his son to go into the ministry. He, he understood that maybe Ben wasn't cut out for this, not because he wasn't sufficiently smart, but because he wasn't perhaps as devout or as committed as he needed to be. Um, so they tried to find a trade for the son and they, he, his father was a Ben Franklin's father was a candle maker, but that was really dull. So eventually they found an apprenticeship for Ben with his older brother, James, who was a, a publisher, a printer and publisher. And that's what gave uh, Franklin in part an appetite for, for print and uh and and news and and, um, and publishing um so he grew up in this religious culture it's i don't know if i mean the reputation of boston um is one of orthodox puritanism i guess some, some renderings of it although i think by the time franklin was born in 1706 with especially with the the 
various episodes and generations of Puritanism in Massachusetts. It was not what it what it was when John Winthrop arrived, say, 80 years earlier or so. Or um, so I don't know that it was as orthodox an environment. It certainly there were certainly restrictions on what people could do because of that religious presence, and there were expectations for certain kinds of conduct, going to church, etc. Franklin talked about devotional life in the home, singing psalms with his his parents at home, um, certain kinds of devotional literature at home. But my sense, too, is that that Boston was relatively fluid within a very narrow range of Protestantism, but that Franklin could find other outlets there than simply having to think about being a good Puritan boy all the time. You know, it's it's early in his life that, that you tell us where he begins to write some about um, deism. And it's probably often the case that Franklin is sort of looked at as a deist, you know, through and through. Um, but the picture you, you sort of give us here, it's more nuanced than that. Um, and Franklin's, uh, his deism, it, it changes over time. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, the odd thing about deism is that it's not as if someone can be a card carrying deist the way you could be a card carrying congregationalist or Methodist or Presbyterian. I, and Franklin was certainly early uh, an early deist in the North American setting, when you look at some of the prominent deists, say, for instance, Thomas Jefferson or um, uh, names or other names are escaping me right now, but they're much they're much younger than Franklin by at least a generation, if not more. And I guess Ethan Payne is another prominent one whose name comes to mind. And he actually did, as I recall, form some kind of deist society. Um, and nothing like that existed for Franklin. Franklin wrote a dissertation basically on predestination and free will while he was a um, working in London. He had a brief time where he went over to try to find some, some printing, uh, a printer um, device for a fellow back in, in Philadelphia that he was going to bring it back. And that deal blew up. And so Franklin had to live in London for a time. And, um, and he hung out in the coffee culture. He was exposed to a lot of enlightenment ideas. He was always exposed to that. He was a voracious reader. Um, and so he was fitting in with a, um, a Lockean moderate Anglican enlightenment outlook. And as a young man, and, and I think most young people are prone to to excesses that they that they have to pull back from later in life. He was he went full in with a kind of a, a, a deistical god who who really was quite arbitrary in the way he set things up. But Franklin had all of those uh, copies, or at least most of those copies of the dissertation destroyed. Um, and f- I think there there were practical reasons for that. He didn't want to get a reputation back in Philadelphia when he returned of being a, um, a kind of Socrates figure who had these bad ideas that would harm the youth or something. He wanted to be a successful businessman. He needed to be conventional in, in certain ways. So that would be a reason why he, he pulled back 
in a, in a certain respect, but I think he was just, he was a playful person and he played with ideas. He played with all sorts of things. I mean, I think his, his scientific experiments were part of that playfulness to see how things would work, see what would work, what wouldn't work. And he did this early on with these ideas that it's easy to classify as deist so that he didn't believe Jesus was divine. Um, but, but he, that's, you know, so I don't know what he also thought about the Holy Spirit per se. So he wouldn't, he wasn't Trinitarian. He probably could have been a Unitarian by the 19th century, but that wasn't available to him. Um, he had a high regard for the Bible, had a high, high regard for Christian morality. He had a sense that there would be a comeuppance after death, uh, you would be rewarded according to your goodness or punished according to your wickedness. Um, but he just didn't buy the most redemptive aspects of Christianity. And I think that's what, that's why it's easiest to put him in the deist classification. Right. Right. That makes sense. I want to ask about his moral thinking, um, where Franklin is, he's separating virtue from faith. Um, and he's seeing his effort, that striving and, and pursuit of uh, perfecting the, the moral life. He's seeing that as, as virtuous. I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to how Franklin here is, I mean, he's, he's drawing upon and diverging from Puritan thought, it, it, it seems, because on the one end, Franklin's, you know, the Protestant heritage, it would commend that sort of resolute attitude toward upright living, um, you know, but, but at the same time, may disagree on, on sort of the nature and the source of those, right. those efforts. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's always struck me that um, when Jonathan Edwards converted around, he was 18 or, or so, but this is something from the early 1720s that Edward, Edwards had a plan for a kind of, um, if not perfection, a kind of really high level, uh, devotion that I did compare to Franklin's own resolution. And of course, Franklin is writing about his plan for perfection as part of his autobiography. And he's writing that in the 1770s and 1780s, you know, which as um, any good historian would then think, well, how accurate is a man? How, how accurate is what he's describing? Can we trust him, first of all, to describe himself? And can we trust him to remember correctly what he was what he was up to, but he did save some fragments too. So there's a chart in his autobiography of, of the, the virtues that he sought and he would put little dots um, about how he did on that particular day with regard to those virtues. It's almost like a spreadsheet from the 18th century. Um, but it, there's something in the water among New England Protestants and heirs of Puritanism that I, that would, it seems to me that would put Franklin and Edwards on a similar path toward, toward the pursuit of, of a really high and demanding moral life. And of course, Edwards would give an account very different from Franklin's. There is within the Protestant tradition, um, and I, I would also, I don't know it as well, but I would I guess it's there among Roman Catholics, of a civic virtue as opposed to a, a spiritual or Christian virtue, that, and that there are 
benefits for people who aren't Christians, but still pursuing the moral life. It's good for society. It's good for families, et cetera. And I think that's one way that Franklin could have also come to this by thinking that these are these are virtues that make society, make people, make families work really well. He was a very practical uh, person. But there, the other side of this, too, is um, he did have an illegitimate son, uh, William. And to the best of my knowledge, I, I, I have I don't go deep in into Franklin sources or keep up with all the literature that keeps to, that is published. Although I do keep up with anything written online that Google alerts will send me. Um, it seems that we still don't know who the woman was, who the mother of William Franklin was, which really is an amazing um, aspect of the past that that has remained hidden. Um, but I'll, I say that only because uh I wonder if Franklin had real regrets over that kind of indiscretion and and thought he really needed to make up for that and and pursue some kind of life with with moral purpose and make sure that that didn't happen again. Now, he admits in his um in his autobiography that he could, that he that he wasn't good at this this plan and that pride was the most difficult of sins to overcome. And he also had a thing for the ladies. He, he carried on correspondence with younger women. That was quite flirtatious. There was, there was a, a French uh, aristocratic woman he meets while he's a diplomat later in life. That he, he doesn't, it doesn't seem like he had an affair, but it was certainly they had, they carried on in ways that could have led to an affair, let's say that. And um, so it's, it's not as if Franklin sort of just had a complete reversal in his life. But I, I do think wanting to overcome the indiscretion of having a son out of, mar- out of wedlock, as well as wanting to be a respectable businessman in a city dominated by Quakers who were really very moral and in some ways on a spectrum of English Protestantism, you could put Church of England perhaps on one side of the spectrum Quakers may be on the other side, but close to Quakers in some ways would be Baptists and some, some of the, some of the Puritans as well. Um, so that setting of Philadelphia, I think led Franklin to be also, uh, interested in trying to make sure he walked the straight and narrow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, that's really helpful to think about it. Um, you know, another thing to, to, to consider here, uh, beyond Franklin as, as a moral thinker, um, Franklin as a, as an intellect, um, is, is one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, it, it, it may sort of be a, a misconception that we imagine Franklin's intellectual curiosity or his, his participation in the sciences, um, as strictly isolated from Protestant thought. Um, 
but are there are there sort of threads connecting uh, Franklin and, and modern science in general um, uh, to earlier Christian thinking? Well, I mean, one way that I tried to th- conceive of that, and and I've and I and I thought about this too in relation to secularization and the way in which um, Steve Bruce is somebody, a sociologist. I guess he's English. Um, I know he writes. I know he's British. Um, and I, I've benefited a lot from his work on um, on secularization. But um, Protestants like Judaism. This is an argument that, that Bruce makes somewhere in one of his books that uh, Protestants really did um, sort of um, desacralize uh, the natural world. If if Christendom, in some ways, and Roman Catholic thought, led to an idea that everything was sort of incarnational or everything was sacramental, and the Roman medieval Catholic theologians would be much better at making that clear and distinct in ways that I think sometimes modern Roman Catholic thinkers are not. They can be really squishy about that sacramental side of the universe, but but Protestants in emphasizing the transcendence of God and emphasizing the differences between creation and redemption uh, did provide a space. And there have, I guess there are some historians of science that would argue this, that they created a space for people like Franklin to, to do much more exploration of the natural world and not have to conceive of it in overtly religious or theological categories beyond say a creator who, who set it up or, or, a, or Providence. I mean, Providence is a big part of the founders uh, outlook on the world, Franklin among them. And I, Deus would, would have also affirmed Providence in that way. Um, sense that God controls all things and, and um, but not necessarily in a, in a redemptive or salvific way. So, I, I, I think Franklin fits in that, um, in that understanding of the history of science and Christianity, especially Protestantism. Um, and so his, his, even his discovery of, uh, the electric electrical character of lightning. Um, if, if you look at the explanations of lightning in the 18th century that even Protestants were using, there was oftentimes associating it with some kind of punishment from God for sin. If there was a lightning strike that started a fire, et cetera, that, you know, this, this is still part and parcel of the way that Christian um, pastors, but even lay people think about uh, catastrophes or emergencies in the world, that there's some, some uh, understanding that this is God is, is judging humankind for this. Franklin wasn't as committed to that, even though he did believe in divine judgment at the end of life for people. Um, And so he was willing to explore the natural dimensions of of things. He had an incredible curiosity. One of the aspects of his life that I admire about him the most is just how fascinated he was, a sense of wonder about almost everything around him from um, the color of fabrics and whether they, how much heat they could retain to uh, the, the, the little 
critters he saw on the algae on the boat as he's coming back from um, London to Philadelphia. He just was paying attention to nature all the time. I guess you could call him a naturalist of a kind, even though he wasn't working in nature directly as a as a printer and editor. Um, but it's it's just it's just amazing. So he was endlessly curious, endlessly doing all sorts of experiments. And science as it was in the 18th century was very amateur. Um, and there was a community of people doing science. Uh, sometimes historians will call this a republic of letters, people, enlightenment figures who are writing letters back and forth to each other. And Franklin was certainly a part of a network of scholars who were investigating different aspects of science, the Royal Society and the, and the like. And, and, and Franklin's in that world. But again, he's not constrained because of his lack of orthodoxy, he's not as constrained to fit what he's finding in a doctrinal grid the way, say, maybe other Protestants may be. So was maybe he was taking um, scientific investigation farther by virtue of not being constrained that way. I don't, I don't want to make it seem like orthodoxy is always opposed to science, but it, it can um, also give you certain categories that make that present uh, warning signs if you stray too far from something. And Franklin certainly didn't do that. And because, again, he was almost as playful as he was curious, he just conducted a lot of experiments. And once he retired from the, the printing business at the young age of 42, I believe, in 1748, he has much more time to do some of these experiments even though he was also by that point beginning to become very active in politics, first locally and then um, in the colonies and then, of course, internationally. Right. Yeah, and I suppose that's a, that's another place to 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 stop and, and address, you know, beyond the moral the, and the intellectuals, the political um, in terms of, of Franklin's uh, spiritual life. Uh, one thing you talk about here is is Franklin's ability and willingness and, and probably in no small part a reason for success as a leader uh, this ability to work with those who held different views and, and who held you know different church memberships and that sort of thing um, can you tell us how did how did Franklin come to prominence uh, in Philadelphia political life and 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 how did religion especially factor into sure. into some of his political ideas well, he was a guy, if I can put it that way, always on the make. And I'm not sure I should even put it that way either. But as a, as a man starting out a printing business, and he came to Philadelphia with nothing. He, he had escaped the uh, indenture with his brother um, on a kind of technicality. But he had he really did escape. He shouldn't have left the apprenticeship, the contract under which he was working for his brother. Um, he didn't like that arrangement and he, and he, he left when he had an opening. Um, so he came without resources that he might've had, had he stayed in his apprenticeship and he had to find his way. It took him a while, took him a few years before he could even set up a business. And then once he does set up a business, he's looking for all sorts of work and he corners the market on printing uh, currency, printing public documents for government, 
both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, and so he becomes somebody that the legislators in, in both those colonies know. And so by the time that he does um, become independent, a man of means, almost a gentleman, there's a, he, he commissions the very first portrait of him. There are many portraits of Franklin. And I, one of the things that I'm fascinated by in, in the, in the life of Franklin is the way in which Americans have remembered him and commemorated him with statues and portraits. But the very first portrait of Franklin comes from a one that he himself commissions and uh, Gordon Wood, great historian of um, the founding era uh, makes a big deal of Franklin portraying himself as a gentleman in this. He has now made it. And it's one of the least, um, or the one of the most artificial of the portraits of Franklin, it seems to me. Um, but uh, but he's still he is a successful businessman by this point. He's wealthy enough to live without having to work um, and having all those connections in government that he had established as somebody who did a lot of work, a lot of print jobs for a lot of different uh, institutions, among them political. Um, he was ready to go. And so he begins to serve in the Pennsylvania assembly. He's also, even before there are such um, agencies within civic government, like a, um, a fire department, like a police department, he's already uh, forming institutions like that. He helps to get the first fire department going. He studies you know, what, what can, what makes for a really bad fire and figures out ways to try to prevent that. He's interested in, he, had, he developed his own fireplace, his own stove, the Franklin stove that they, you know, will heat houses better without creating fires. Again, he's always practical. He, he establishes first militia when uh, the English are, are beginning to have to do battle with the French and uh, native Americans um, so he's also not simply working for the assembly. Uh, he's also a postmaster general, but he's also doing, he's, he's forming these organizations that we take for granted now as part of um, urban civic life. Um, so he just kind of naturally rises up to become a figure of um, that people trust. He doesn't really hold power, it seems to me, in a way, say, a governor would like a Winthrop who John Winthrop, who was governor of um, colonial Massachusetts early on. He doesn't have that kind of power. And I wonder if he lacked that kind of ambition um, or if he just wasn't temperamentally suited to that, but he's, he was somebody who, who knew how things operated. He was a transactional kind of politician and very useful to have around especially for conducting negotiations, both as the colonists themselves try to organize to fight off the French and eventually as the colonists also organize to try to gain independence fr from Britain. Um, and by that point, his, his, his usefulness as a negotiator, there are lots of founders like John Adams who are suspicious of Franklin. They, they don't necessarily think uh, he's the uh, up, most upstanding of people. Uh, they don't necessarily always trust his his instincts for what's good for the colonies and good for independence. Um, but he's 
He has so much experience. He knows so many different people. He's been such a glad hander that it's really hard to get rid of him as well. And so he just keeps to climb the ladder as a public figure. Again, not someone who, who held an office of great prominence. He did hold offices along the way, but as someone who just seems to know how to get things done. Well, Daryl, I, I want to ask about this this list you include at the end of the book that represents a, a spectrum of Anglo-American Protestant heritage. Um, and you suggest that, uh, you know, if some, if, if some people on this list, you list Cromwell, Theodore Roosevelt, John Locke, if they're counted among that heritage from Puritanism down to mainline Protestantism, then why not Franklin? And uh, as we're as we're wrapping up now, I I want to ask. I, I, I'm I'm just wondering if you could, you know, maybe comment on why you think it is that Franklin is typically left off a list like that, and you know, is there significance to his his religious legacy that maybe indicates he should be included? Yeah. Um. Milton, John Milton is someone else that I don't remember if I put on that list, but should be. Milton's a really fascinating character who starts as a Puritan, uh, works closely with Cromwell, and then kind of goes off the rails. An- another figure very highly regarded um, is Abraham Lincoln, uh, such that someone like Mark Knoll would argue Lincoln is maybe the best theologian of the Civil War. Um which I think may be a little overdone, even though I have great respect for Mark. Um, I, I guess one way to answer this is Franklin never did join a church um, the way that others did. And, and he attended probably not regularly. His wife, Deborah, was a member at Christ Church, Philadelphia, the Anglican church there. Um, and, and Franklin rented a pew for her and the family and he was very cordial with the priests there, uh, but he never took any vows to become a member. Um, and that would be one factor, even though I should also add that he was um, he's buried in that uh, church cemetery in, in Philadelphia with, with his family. Um, I, so that would be one factor. And I think that's a pretty good one. I mean, if you don't actually join a church, it, it makes it hard for you to be considered a Christian, although these days all you need to do is have Jesus in your heart and you're a Christian. So um, the, the other side of it, too, perhaps, is that Protestants at the time when he died didn't rise up to valorize him the way, say, that Protestants did with other figures who may not have been as great. Here I'm thinking especially of Lincoln. There was course with his assassination that turns him into a martyr kind of figure having been martyred on good friday that even makes it raises the stakes um to do that but um there wasn't the 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 rallying of support from the church community to franklin that there would have been for other figures which i think is another factor in it um and i think some of the major biographers of franklin have used franklin uh, less for religious purposes and more for an enlightenment or secular purposes. And I, I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I, that's certainly a part of who Franklin was. 
But I also think he was as steeped in a Puritan environment growing up. He was as um, cooperative with a Quaker society as he was in Philadelphia. Um, and he, again, he played around with religion in ways that were uh, not abrasive. So, for instance, he one of the things he worked on when he, when he was in London in the 1770s was a revised version of the Book of Common Prayer. And he wanted to make the services shorter, et cetera, so that people in the winter wouldn't have to sit in cold churches as long. All sorts of practical reasons for doing that. Um, so so he, he was, I think, always friendly to religion. And of course, one of the topics I do uh, cover in the book that, that skips out, uh, Harry Stout at Yale, also covered in his biography of Whitfield, he had a really great friendship with Whitfield. This this prominent evangelist revivalist during the so-called first great awakening, I prefer to call it the, sec, the first pretty good awakening, using a phrase that Leo Rabuffo used. Um, but um, so he just wasn't hostile to Christianity, and and I think the the biographers of of Franklin who emphasize a more secular scientific enlightenment aspect of him don't always capture this, these, the ways in which he was surrounded by, had to work with Christians of all sorts in society at that time, and did so respectfully, I, I think, in a relatively um, contented way, maybe even happy about it. So, um, but he, I guess you still can't really hold him up, except perhaps his plan of virtue as, as a, um, as a great figure of Christian, um, expression. And I guess that would be the reason why he, he doesn't measure up. Well, great. I, I appreciate your answers there. And, um, and, and, and we're grateful too for your time. Um, I'm sure our, our listeners are appreciative, um, of you lending your time here to talk about Franklin, um, before we go, though, I want to ask uh, maybe if you can give us a heads up on what you plan to write next. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, I would like, um, after this current writing project, which I'll say something about, I'd like to do something with Crawford Gribben, Gribben and I are talking about doing a book on Christian nationalism in Britain and America um, with all the attention of late to that. Um, but uh, currently I'm writing a, which is a book that's related to this, which is about Presbyterians and British politics from the 16th century down to the 19th century, looking at England, Scotland, Ireland, United States, and Canada under the sort of heading of were Presbyterians inherently rebellious or revolutionary since so many people attribute the American Revolution to Presbyterianism. And um, I'm trying to unpack that, but it's also, it is striking to me that Presbyterians being as zealous as they were for reforming church government, getting rid of bishops, um, they, they introduced an element into Anglo-American politics that that is, I think, different from other European countries and societies. So I'm trying to follow that through and um, and look at the Presbyterian contributions to politics in, in those different countries. 
Very good. We'll definitely have to look out for that. Uh, for now, though, uh, thank you for writing this book. It's called Benjamin Franklin, Cultural Protestant. It's out in 2021 with Oxford University Press. And thank you, Daryl, so much for joining me today. Great to be with you, Zach. I appreciate uh, your good questions. And it was it was f- fun to relive some of these moments <clears throat> with w- about Franklin. Thanks. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network.